Hello, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Ignite Radio Live. You are with Greg and Stephanie Schleter on Annunciation Radio over the five mighty stations for the Almighty. We are so excited that you are all with us here tonight. If you're looking for some great content that is inspiring and challenging, we encourage you to go to IgniteRadioLive.com. We've had a number of phenomenal interviews and testimonies about the kinds of things that you're asking, the questions that you're asking. And tonight, I'm very delighted that we are blessed to have my brother and sister-in-law, Dr. Nathan and Elizabeth Schleter with us all the way from Hillsdale, <laughs> Michigan. So blessed to have you guys with us tonight. How are you doing? We're doing great. Thanks for having us We're on. We're doing great. Awesome. So to set the stage, we are going to be talking about Vatican II, and I simply want to make a declaration, a declaration of awesomeness, if you will, because uh, they have the sophisticated, eloquent language. I get to use words like awesomeness. So number one, <laughs> is the awesomeness of the Word made flesh, the second person of the Trinity who took on flesh and blood to what? Dignify our human nature. That very act of taking on flesh and blood was phenomenal. But the the second thing is also extremely awesome and powerful, and that is that he continues to make his presence known through human and material instrumentality. He's with us. He's with us in the sacraments. He's with us particularly in the Eucharist, but also teaching. He's communicating his truth to us and through us. And what does that mean? It means, yes, he could speak to us directly, that uh, theophany, right? Directly as he did to Saul, who became Paul. And I, for one, one of my questions to God one day may be, God, you did it with Saul. Why can't you do it with us? This world needs to hear you directly. But the uh, interesting thing, and it's a mysterious thing, is that God chooses to make that known through us, his body, which means, let's face it, we're all imperfect. We are mired in our imperfection. And so therein, is a mystery. How does the perfect God make his presence known, make his message known, his truth known through our imperfection? And I think there's probably no greater study or consideration than the church's teachings, the magisterium, and in a particular way, Vatican II, which today has definitely come under some fire by some folks, mired in a lot of confusion. And I think it is because of this perfection of God speaking his truth, his perfect truth, his church through our imperfect humanity. With that as sort of a stage setter, um, we are delighted that we have Dr. Nate, my brother, a professor at Hillsdale College, and his wife, Elizabeth, who got her master's degree at the same institution of higher learning as Nathan got his PhD, University of Dallas. And uh, tonight, it's going to be a little different in our flow. We're simply going to give them a stage to um, share, I think, a very meaningful, if you will, explication of Vatican II with a particular attentiveness to the critiques, a particular attentiveness to those reservations that you may be familiar with. And if you don't have them, that's fine too. You're going to learn something tonight. You're going to learn something of God's wisdom working through his body, the church. They initially presented this actually at um, at Hillsdale College to the uh, Catholic group there on campus. And when Nathan and I were talking about this, he shared that it was extremely well received. And I said, hey, let's just do this. So with no further ado, blessed to have you, Nathan and Elizabeth. And I'm just going to give you guys the stage. Back in the mid-90s, Elizabeth and I were uh, at the University of Dallas, and we were recently married, living in a dorm because we were quad directors in that dorm. I was working on my dissertation, and Elizabeth was an admissions counselor at the time. She had just graduated, and because she was then working for the college, she decided to take advantage of the tuition, the free tuition to get a master's degree in theology. 
at the University of Dallas. Mm -hmm. And so she enrolled in the Institute for uh, Pastoral, Religious and Pastor, Theological and Pastoral Studies. I would be in my dorm room reading and, and writing on my dissertation, and she would come home from class and just with this sort of overwhelming enthusiasm about the Second Vatican Council. All fired up. Yeah, <laughs> and, and to be honest, at the time, I was uh, pretty skeptical about the Council. Mm. I, I, I was raised, like many of you were, in the uh, late 70s and 80s, when Catholicism seemed to, to be in a very, in very bad shape. Uh, squishy, moral catechesis, it mm -hmm. seemed as though every school we attended, uh, our, you know, the Orthodox parents were fighting against, against the theology teachers. It was just recurring everywhere. Mm -hmm. And then there was just the banality of the liturgy, the, what, what appeared to be liturgy, a lot of widespread liturgical abuse, a refusal to speak with courage on some of the moral issues that are central to our time, especially abortion. Uh, we were not hearing sermons about that. And it seemed as though the church was in a bad state. And it just seemed obvious uh, the, the, the Second Vatican Council seemed like a good target. It marked the watershed, you know. You, you thought, oh, everything, everything has happened since then. Yeah, but the, but the funny thing about this story is I would come home and Nate used to say, uh, so I would, I, so, so she would could be coming at me with how great the council was, and I would just start kind of pushing back a little bit. Well, I'm just not so sure, and then and then her voice would rise a little bit, yeah, and yeah. she'd get every time I resisted, she would get more energetic. I would I would come up with my big bound copy of all the council documents, and Nate's joke was I would hit him upside the head with it, <laughs> and he would try to you know hedge a little room to disagree. And I wasn't going to give him any room. Isn't this amazing? I mean, look at this document. Isn't this great? So in a way, our disagreements about the council early on were a figure for some of our marital problems. I learned over the years to give people a little room not to be completely on board with whatever I was passionate about. But the big but, question yeah. she asked at the time was, did, did, where is that in the documents? I would, I would raise these objections. And she would say, where is it in the text? Just show me where you're getting that from. Uh, have you read the document? And I always had to say, no, no, I, I'm sure it's there. I just had this generalized sense that somewhere there, that this was going to be, these, these reservations I had were going to be somehow supported in those documents. So I finally had to read the documents, and that was the, the big change for me and has become a great part of, of our own marriage is, sort of enjoying uh, what that means. So that's just a, a little uh, entree into the uh, topic that we're treating here. And um, Elizabeth's going to say a little, little bit more about how we're going to approach this. We are going to talk more about the actual text of the documents in this program, but kind of the upshot of that story is that if you are one of those people who just has doubts about the council or doesn't know what to think about it, a lot of people share that experience. I think it's really common and it's really understandable because especially if you grew up in the, you know, if you came of age in the 70s and 80s and even early 90s, 
you, you often heard from the more progressive or liberal or even unorthodox church leaders that they would appeal to the Second Vatican Council, right? So, the, and, and you look around, you know, you just look around, you see that the, uh, the, the catechetical carnage during those years, 70s and 80s, like Nate said, my mom was, there wasn't a single high school religion teacher that ever taught clear doctrine during my high school years. And that's a scandal, right? That's a big problem. So people have this sense that Vatican II is to blame. It marked the change in the 60s. Uh, and sometimes that idea is fed by others. You know, I think it can be fed by strong opinions on the left and the right. Um, but we will, we will argue that that blaming of the council is misguided. We're going to try and put some evidence before you. We're going to draw on the council documents themselves, Catechism of the Catholic Church, and the writings of Pope Benedict XVI, especially the Ratzinger Report, which was released in 1985, and the 2005 Christmas Address that he gave. And we might read some of those passages out loud. And one reason that we draw heavily on Benedict XVI is he really he is the one who directly confronts this question. Is the council to blame for the crisis in the church? Why or why not? He's asked this question and he responds to it. So he's really helpful for sort of facing it head on. So let's just talk quickly about the council itself to get the basics down because a lot of listeners maybe don't know what it is. Our, our daughter, Helen, who's very bright, she's a freshman uh, at the college, uh, recently at the dinner table said, "What what is the Second Vatican Council, I don't really even know. I just hear people talk about it. And we, that's why we gave that talk at Hillsdale, because we realized there was a lot of talk about the council, but no one really knew very much about it. So this was uh, an ecumenical council called by Pope John the Twenty Third in 1962. Um, midway through the council, uh, John the Twenty Third died and Paul the Sixth. Um, was elected Pope, and he reconvened the council. He did not have to do that, I should note, uh, but he did reconvene the council, and they finished their work in 1965. Uh, there were over 2,000 bishops that participated in that council, uh, along with a lot of um, theologians and observers and others, including uh, Benedict XVI and John Paul II, were both uh, participants in the council. Uh, and it produced 16 documents. Uh, the first was the uh, was on the liturgy, uh, but the other documents concern the nature of the church, uh, the nature of divine revelation, ecumenism, religious liberty, uh, and the role of the church in the modern world. So one thing Nate and I, when we've talked about this, uh, we get this from Benedict XVI also, that just like C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity says, You've got three choices when it comes to Jesus Christ. And you have to pick one of the three. There's, there aren't any others. And the three choices Lewis says, if you remember, he's either a lunatic, he's a liar, or he's the Lord. And something analogous to that comes to the fore with the council. We, we have to have one of three attitudes toward it. Toward it. The first one is what Nathan dubbed the hermeneutic of squish. And if hermeneutic is a big, scary word, it just means the uh, mode of interpretation for how something, you interpret how you something. interpret something. So, 
you can so the hermeneutic of squish or the interpretation of squish is eh, i hear a lot of stuff about the vatican second vatican council it doesn't sound too good i'd rather not think about it i'm just not going to go there right that's hermeneutic of squish it's just kind of avoiding the question right so it, it turns out to not really be an answer at all. It's just, uh, I don't want to think about it. The second is what Benedict XVI has called a hermeneutic of rupture. And this is the idea that the council was a rupture. It marks a, an ending of the doctrinal teaching of the church prior to it and a, a truly new thing. It's a break right, between what came before and what comes after. And one, and then the third hermeneutic, which Benedict XVI and John Paul II both really put forth, is interpreting the council as an expression of authentic reform, the hermeneutic of reform, right? And one thing I'd want to point out about these two, the second and third ones, right, hermeneutic of rupture or hermeneutic of reform, the hermeneutic of rupture is agreed upon by both the extreme right and left in the church. So the real progressives in the church and the real traditionalists in the church both talk like the council is a break, a full break. It's just that the progressives think the break initiates the best part of the church and the traditionalists think the break means the end of the good when it comes to the liturgy and teaching and doctrine and everything else and the beginning of the bad, right? So that's just an interesting thing to note. And when it comes to the hermeneutic of reform, which Benedict XVI really strongly defends in the Ratzinger report, one thing I wanna note is that he says, there is a crisis in the church. We, we can see that. Uh, we can say there's a crisis. But Benedict XVI would say, and we'll read you some quotes from him, the council is actually the solution to that crisis. The authentic council understood by its text is the solution to the crisis in the church, not the problem. So those are kind of the three ways we can appropriate the council. We don't really think there's another way in truth. So how do we... Uh, determine who's right. Is, uh, I think we could dismiss the hermeneutic of squish and ask who's right. Was the council a rupture between a pre-conciliar and post-conciliar church, or was is it the same church through the reform? And I want to give just two considerations towards answering that question. The first one is just to acknowledge the fact that this is an ecumenical council. And if you look at faithful Orthodox church teaching um, across the church's history, ecumenical councils express the extraordinary magisterium of the church. That's a technical word. Magisterium refers to the teaching authority of the church. And ecumenical councils are one of two of of the most extraordinary but most special and definitive ways in which the church magisterium expresses itself. The other is when the Pope solemnly defines some matter of doctrine ex cathedra, that is from the chair of St. Peter. And the popes have done that twice, uh, as you may know, in, in the history of the church. 
but most of the other uh, dogmatic definitions, pronouncements have come from ecumenical councils. So this council has a kind of heightened uh, uh, credibility when you set it against any other sort of uh, non-conciliar judgments, whether those are apostolic letters or encyclical letters uh, or whatever, those have to be set against a council. And a council, in its authoritativeness, it seems to me, has, has a lot more weight than those. And so this is the way um, Ratzinger puts it in his 1985 interview, The Ratzinger Report, which Elizabeth mentioned earlier, but I highly recommend it for anyone who wants to get a really sober and useful perspective on the council. This is a great place to go. Ratzinger, of course, becomes Pope Benedict XVI. Ratzinger writes, this is page 28, First, it is impossible for a Catholic to take a position for or against Trent, the Council of Trent, or Vatican I. Whoever accepts Vatican II, as it has clearly expressed and understood itself, at the same time accepts the whole binding tradition of the Catholic Church, particularly also the two previous councils. And that also applies to the so-called progressivism, at least in its extreme forms. Second, it is likewise impossible to decide in favor of Trent and Vatican II, but against uh, Vatican I, but against Vatican II. I want to repeat that. It is impossible to decide in favor of the councils of Trent and Vatican I, but against Vatican II. Whoever denies Vatican II denies the authority that upholds the other two councils and thereby detaches them from their foundation. And this applies to the so-called traditionalism, also in its extreme forms. Every partisan choice destroys the whole, the very history of the church, which can only exist as an indivisible unity. Very strong words and right to the point. The second point, now, by the way, when I say that, that does not mean that every document that came out of the council is doctrinal or dogmatic. The documents have different statuses depending in part on their titles. I mentioned that there are two dogmatic constitutions of the council, a dogmatic constitution on the church and a dogmatic constitution on divine revelation. And obviously the title of those indicates that they're going to have a much more uh, authoritative weight to them than say a decree on ecumenism. Nevertheless, I think it's a mistake to think that uh, the way the church understands its teaching is I only have to accept the, dogma you know, the, the clear dogmatic teaching and everything else is kind of just up to me to decide. That's a huge mistake. The church makes clear that even pastoral elements, uh, pronouncements of the church, require what the catechism calls a religious submission of intellect and will. Religious. That means a, a, a serious a uh, prayerful uh, submission to that magisterial teaching in an attempt to understand it and embrace it. Can I add something here? Uh, so that's important. That's, a, that's an important caveat that we have to we have to see that the council's documents do have differing authorities, but that doesn't mean we can ignore them. They're still the documents of an ecumenical council. But then, in con in conjunction with that, 
we can also say there's a difference between the text, the documents of the council themselves, and the implementation of the council, or the follow-up documents that implemented or tried to implement what the council was calling for. And there, we do not have to give, we can critique those pretty harshly. And in fact, we can see today things like uh, the recent question in the liturgy, and we'll return to this later, of ad orientum, right? Having the priest and the congregation face the East, Cardinal Sarah brought up, this is, Cardinal Sarah brought up, this has never actually been changed in the sacramentary that anyone could face the East. It was never actually changed. People just started doing it uh, toward the people, and that became the practice. So there's a lot of room, again, that the key is to know the council itself and to know that that's what carries the weight and the authority, not necessarily everything that comes after it. I just wanted to put that in there, too. That doesn't demand our assent of faith in the same way. Thank you for that. Uh, the second point I wanted to make, then, is not only that this is an ecumenical council, and so therefore has uh, this, it's the same type of council that the councils of Nicaea and Ephesus and Chalcedon, the first, you know, the first four ecumenical councils, also Trent were. And so if you're thinking through the faith of the church, it's the, it's the same magisterium but secondly the, uh, the five popes that were involved in that council or since that council all five of them including two of them that have been canonized as saints uh john the 23rd and uh john paul the great john paul ii uh, uh affirmed that council approved of it and not only that but benedict the 16th and john paul ii very explicitly made faithful implementation of the council their primary goal. So I would like to read just one passage from um, Ratzinger and the Ratzinger Report on this issue. This is page 31. To defend the true tradition of the church today means to defend the council. That is the Second Vatican Council. It is also our fault. We at times have, provi have provided a pretext to the right and left alike to view Vatican II as a break and an abandonment of the tradition. There is instead a continuity that allows neither a return to the past nor a flight forward, neither anachronistic longings nor unjustified impatience. We must remain faithful to the today of the church, not the yesterday or tomorrow. And this today of the church is the documents of Vatican II without reservations that amputate them and without arbitrariness that distorts them. And he says stronger things about that as well. So the upshot here is simply that if anyone wants to argue that the council was somehow uh, heterodox or that it's the, the, the root of the problems in the church today, if anyone is going to oppose that council, they have a very strong burden, a very high burden to meet. Uh, that I don't think, I don't see how it can be met right. uh, without putting oneself in a position of something like a Protestant descent. Right. And, and likewise, though, you know, he's very fair about the two extremes. If anyone wants to talk about the Second Vatican Council and dismiss the enduring teaching of the church prior to it, including Trent and Vatican I especially, they are clearly off base. That's not the way the council understood itself. 
And that's not the way Benedict XVI and the hermeneutic of reform uh, urge us to understand it, that it, it, is, it is a reaffirmation of that tradition, not a break. And so the progressives also have a high burden for proving you know, th their rather sloppy uh, interpretation of the council. Is it me now? Oops, okay, you might have to. All right, so uh, one important part of the context of the council in addition to the history is to go back and ask why was the council convened? And um, again, the the uh, the claim of Benedict the Sixteenth very clearly in the in the Ratzinger report is that the way we find out what the council, what the spirit of the council is, is through the text of the council. That's how we find out. We don't make stuff up or uh, interpret the Second Vatican Council uh, the way we might want to interpret uh, Vatican III, which hasn't happened yet, right? We, we have to pay attention to the text. So the place we would go is the opening address of Pope John the 23rd when he opened the council called Gaudet Mater Ecclesia. And that opening address uh, is very clear about why at least Pope John the 23rd understood the council uh, to be convened. And what, what I think is interesting is comparing what he says in that address to kind of the popular understanding of why the council was convened. When you look up, you know, the Second Vatican Council or you hear people talk about it, often they will refer to a comment that John the 23rd made uh, in a different and I don't even know exactly what speech it is. Nate thinks it's an address he gave in 1958. But he made a comment where he said, we're going to, quote, open the windows of the church and let in fresh air, unquote. And you hear this quote thrown around as if this is the reason that the council was convened. But you can't find that uh, image anywhere in his opening address. Instead, you find a different image. Uh, he says that we will raise the torch of religious truth by means of this ecumenical council. And then elsewhere he says, uh, the number one, the principal duty of the council is the defense and advancement of truth. And this is a quote from that address. The greatest concern of the ecumenical council is this that the sacred deposit of Christian doctrine should be guarded and taught more efficaciously. So that's how the council understands itself. And then in his Christmas address that we referred to, um, Benedict XVI uh, is talking about the council's self-understanding self and John XXIII's opening address as well. And Benedict XVI says in that Christmas address, quote, here I shall cite only John XXIII's well-known words which univocally express this hermeneutic when he says that the council wishes to transmit the doctrine, pure and integral, without any attenuation or distortion, unquote. And he continues, our duty is not only to guard this precious treasure as if it were concerned only with antiquity, but to dedicate ourselves with an earnest will and without fear to that work which our era demands of us, 
unquote. This is still Benedict XVI quoting John the Twenty-Third. It is necessary that adherence to all the teaching of the church in its entirety and preciseness be presented in faithful and perfect conformity to the authentic doctrine, which, however, should be studied and expounded through the methods of research and through the literary forms of modern thought. The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of the faith is one thing, and the way in which it is presented is another. So that makes clear the council, according to John the 23rd, thinks that the whole point of convening this ecumenical council is to advance the truth and to not to define doctrines or um, come down with anathemas or or new um, or uh, more precise expressions on a doctrinal problem, which in that address, John the 23rd says many previous councils did this, but that's not the point of this council. The point of this council is simply to take the truth that we have and make it more uh, and proclaim it more clearly in a way that more people can understand in the best uh, modern modes that we have. So that's that's the, the self-understanding of the council. I think it's important to to really understand that and not kind of the popular view of John the 23rd just taking a stodgy old church and uh, letting the modern world in. That's, that's clearly not what they thought they were doing. Okay, now we want to get to uh, some of the real issues and I, and I just identify them one by one uh, and go through them and what, what, what at least we think are maybe some of the core things that people are concerned about. So uh, we'll start here uh, with Elizabeth um, and we'll just kind of take turns here and identify them. Okay, I mean... One thing that we have to acknowledge, and, and, and again, uh, uh, Benedict XVI, when he was uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, does acknowledge it very clearly in the Ratzinger Report, is that after the council, there is a kind of crisis, right, in the church. And in his Christmas address, it's really interesting, Benedict XVI quotes, um, I believe it's St. Augustine. St. Basil the Great. Oh, St. Basil the Great, yes. I want to read this quote quickly. It's It's, it's comforting. It's a little bit comforting, right? right? That after the Council of Nicaea, which, boy, if there was a council everybody accepts, including Protestants, it's the Council of Nicaea. And yet, after the council, things looked pretty grim, according to St. Basil. Yeah, we we think things are bad right now. It's very easy to uh, read our times as singularly unique for being difficult and having challenges and seeing dissension in the church. But in the midst of the Arian controversy, there was a time when um, supposedly a substantial number of Catholics were, were, were bought into that heresy. It was a very difficult time. But Basil the Great uh, compares the, the situation of the church to a naval battle and the darkness of the storm. And uh, Benedict quotes St. Basil the Great as saying this, the raucous shouting of those who through disagreement rise up against one another. The incomprehensible chatter, the confused din of uninterrupted clamoring has now filled almost the whole of the church, falsifying through excess or failure the right doctrine of the faith. (laughs) Now, Benedict says, we don't want to apply precisely this dramatic description to the situation of the post-conciliar period, 
yet something from all that has occurred is nevertheless reflected in it. <laughs> so maybe maybe it's not totally out of the ordinary to have dissension after a council, right? In a way, one of the things Ratzinger says in the Ratzinger report is uh, he he indicates, yeah, well, the, the council, the devil would like the Second Vatican Council to be dead on arrival. <laughs> you know, he would like it to be ignored and misinterpreted and, and kind of passed over by the left and the right and not really understood and lived. Um, so I, I think we can say, yeah, there's bad stuff going on. I mean, if you're, if, if you're in your 40s, you lived through some of the worst of it, right? So we can, we, can, we can disagree about exactly what these are, but I think we can generally say that the immediate implementation of the council was flawed, at least flawed. Right. Many things were done, especially in the liturgy, in the name of the council, but often contrary to what it says. And we can see that there's there's catechetical abuses, especially right after the council. Though I think that is improved to some extent when uh, Nate and I were in high school and certainly Greg and Steph, when you were in high school, you probably I mean, the high school religion teachers in the 70s and 80s. You had like a 10% chance of getting church teaching right, right? But we also just see widespread dissent on abortion. Yeah. And today even contraception is a clear example. Yeah. You know, just the sort of almost scandalous failure to teach the truth on contraception and the high numbers of Catholics who practice it. You've got a, a drop in vocations that occurs after the council, vocations of priesthood and religious life. And so it just looks like, okay, if these are the fruits of the council, right. uh, by their fruits you shall know them. Right. You know, Benedict XVI in the Ratzinger Report would explain this by saying, look, the council has yet to be truly implemented, right? And so how do we explain all these bad things that we see? Well, in, in looking at the bad stuff, right, we do have to remember that there are other, that these things are complex, these historical things are complex. And the Second Vatican Council happens right before a huge sexual and cultural revolution that sweeps the world. So we can't blame the council for outside forces necessarily. Also, I had a teacher in my uh, uh, theology masters that argued, I don't know if he's right, but he argued, look, the rapid problems immediately after the council really show that there was some rot there prior to the council. And we ought to take that seriously. Even though the seminaries are booming in the 1950s, does that mean all is well in the church? Maybe not, since they collapsed so quickly right afterward. And that was his argument. I, I found that to be a thoughtful interpretation. But we can't forget either that there are good fruits that have happened since the council. Number one, you know, one of the, the major fruits of the council is the catechism of the Catholic Church. We were trying to explain to our kids recently that when you argued with your high school religion teachers in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't go to the catechism and show them what the church taught, right? Because you could only go to the Baltimore catechism and they might say, oh, well, you know, Second Vatican Council changed all that. And then you'd have to go to the council and you'd have to prove it through the council. So the Catechism of the Catholic Church, if you just open that up and look at the footnotes, 
that right there gives you a tremendous example of the good fruits of the council. The footnotes referencing the documents of the Second Vatican Council, especially the major three, are all are, are probably more than 50% of the footnote, footnotes in the catechism. So if you like the catechism, you can recognize that it's a child of the council. Um, also, the, the pontificates of Benedict XVI and John Paul II. In addition, Greg and Steph, I consider your work a fruit of the Second Vatican Council. I mean, you look at the leading evangelizers today, the lay evangelization in this country, Catholic evangelization, is unbelievable. And it is exactly what was called for by the council and really did not exist like this um, to the same extent. So that's a, a beautiful fruit as well. The theology of the body, an amazing fruit of the Second Vatican Council, really, through John Paul II, who was such a man of the council. Right. The, the, the unifying theme in the theology of the body is, is the line taken from Gaudium et Sped, the, do, the, the last document of the council. Uh, I always have my students uh, memorize GS24, Gaudium et Sped 24. Uh, Man is the only creature God made for his own sake, but man can only find himself through a sincere gift of self. That's sort of the unifying center of the theology of the body. So you, you, get, you, you get that whole rich articulation of human sexuality and marriage, which is not really articulated prior to the council. And it really is a question, it seems to me, a very important question about whether the Theological manuals prior to the council accurately uh, taught human the ethics of human sexuality in a way that was healthy and integral to human flourishing the way I think uh, the theology of the body does. Right. Well, the last fruit I just want to highlight, you know, the good things that we can focus on, the term, the universal call to holiness. The council, of course, the church has always taught that. That's not new. But that is the way the Second Vatican Council phrases this old teaching of the church with a new urgency, right? And all the lay movements in the church, again, Greg and Steph, ignite through to the council, right? And Opus Dei, Opus Dei is completely a, a predicted by, by the Second Vatican Council. It's very much a fruit of the council. An endorsement by non-members. Yeah, we're not true. members. We're not members. But you know, any of these, there are more. You have uh, communion, supplies, communion, and right, communion and, and liberation. liberation. And you have this steep drop in vocation to the priesthood and the religious life. But then you have an explosion of these vibrant new orders as well. So again, the dark and the light there, uh, you can see after the council. Okay, I want to address two, maybe three other issues, and then if you have questions, we can talk about them. The, 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 I think one of the biggest issues for uh, uh, people today, faithful Catholics today, one of those issues is the liturgy. Uh, that is that we find a, a, real, a real renewed attraction to what people call the Latin Mass or the Tridentine Mass. And the difference between the, the way that mass is celebrated and the Novus Ordo mass is seems rather dramatic, 
there's a longing and a hunger for transcendence, for the sacred, for form. And there's, uh, uh, there's this idea maybe among some that, uh, that, that the uh, liturgy, the noblest order liturgy that we're, most of us are accustomed to, that's, that's the change in the liturgy after the council, seems to, to many to look like a, increasingly like a Protestant liturgy and to compromise. And so I just want to make clear about this, that the, that the first document the church passed was Sacrosanctum Concilium. And it, it, it passed by a vote of over uh, 2,100 bishops to four. There were four bishops who objected to over 2,000 bishops who approved of it. And if you go back and look at the document, what you will see are, are things like this. Uh, Latin will be the privileged language in the liturgy. The organ and Gregorian chant have pride of place in the music. There's a great concern to, uh, to reform the liturgy so that it uh, allows for deeper intimacy and worship with God. And people should know that, that the reform movement existed well prior to the Vatican Council, that there were all kinds of, that there was a general consensus among uh, thoughtful theologians, orthodox theologians, and uh, clergy bishops that the liturgy needed some reform. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people, it's in a hugely important point. I, I always am correcting people on this. When they say that they want to go to the Latin Mass, there is only one latin mass that there is there is just one but there are two forms of that latin mass there's one latin rite two forms of the latin rite there's the extraordinary form and the ordinary form they are both fully and completely latin and in fact any priest who wanted to could celebrate the novus ordo mass fully in Latin without having to receive some kind of special permission. That, so, and, and it's to see a Novus Ordo in Latin is really beautiful. I'm actually an advocate of incorporating more Latin into the liturgy, but the point is that, that, the, do, that the document itself does not, as Elizabeth mentioned, uh, ad orientum is not, that there's no uh, verse, uh, versus ad populum in that document. There's nothing in it that recommends or requires mm -hmm. that somehow that the priest turn towards the people in the liturgy. So that so the implementations of that liturgy uh, went off the rails. Mm -hmm. And but we've had a lot of returns. But since that. we have, and not only that though, but it's important you know to balance that out with the knowledge that look, as I understand the history, the papal commissions that prepared the schema for the bishops to vote on, actually submitted uh had something else on the docket to be done first and the bishop said no we want the liturgy done first so there was this urgency that tells you again they thought there was something that needed reform here and again benedict the 16th brings back the extraordinary form purposefully so that again i think he's emphasizing the the continuity right not rupture we're not going to ban it how could something that was the source and summit of the church for hundreds of years be banned that doesn't make sense but neither does it make sense to not see that there are great 
and beautiful goods in the Novus Ordo as well. And that 2,100 of these bishops thought that this was the, so important that it needed to be the very first document voted on. We, we could talk about the uh, principle of active participation. That, that is a term from uh, Sacrosanctum Concilium. It's one of those uh, concepts that has, is a source of the abuse after the church because it was taken in a way that suggested that lay persons should somehow start acting like priests and get up in the sanctuary and start participating. But, but that was not the meaning of the term in the text or afterwards. Uh, the meaning was that the whole church and the liturgy should be united subjectively, each in their respective rightful roles, lay or clergy, should all be subjectively unified in giving worship and adoration to God. And I think that is a great improvement to have that kind of unity, that the liturgy should not be uh, completely incomprehensible and separated from uh, lay persons. The second issue uh, made, I guess it's now the third. So the fruits of the council, the liturgy, I think the third big one, at least for uh, people like Hillsdale students, involves the way in which the church is related to the political world. And this is especially uh, evident uh, in the question about religious liberty. And uh, the, the docu document Dignitatis uh, Humanae was, uh, was one of the really important documents which declared uh, a right to religious liberty. And that was apparently in conflict with a series of 19th century uh, 19th century papal teaching in various encyclical letters, uh, certainly in some conflict, uh, some conflict with what you find even in Thomas Aquinas, at least on the surface. And so the, that document raises some big questions about the continuity um, of, of this document. And here I'll acknowledge that, um, that there are some challenges of interpretation, how how we interpret the foundation and scope and nature of religious liberty. But I want to quote here again, Pope Benedict XVI, uh, who in this Christmas address um, uh, said the following, the second, I'm quoting him here, the second Vatican council recognizing and making its own an essential principle of the modern state with the decree on religious freedom has recovered the deepest patrimony of the church. By so doing, she can be conscious of being in full harmony with the teaching of Jesus himself. And then he goes through and explains this, how this, how this teaching is actually the deepest expression of what the church uh, has always believed and taught. We could have a whole radio program on religious liberty, but behind that, religious liberty is finally, and we'll conclude here, it's, it's a deeper question of how uh, the, the Second Vatican Council thinks about the relationship of the church in the world. And what Benedict XVI makes clear, I think, is that the role of the church is to sanctify the world. The role of the church is to be in the world. And faithful Catholic teaching, it's one of the things I love about Catholic teaching, is the relationship between nature and grace. That, that grace does not destroy nature, but builds on it and perfects it. And so the church is ultimately positioned to look at the world and say, it's my world, right? This is the world, all of creation 
And to some degree, the culture that grows out of creation is an expression of that first nature that was made by God. And so the church in its history has largely been one of, of embracing what is true and good in culture and in nature, but also sanctifying and correcting it. That's like the big thing. The, the church has not been in a posture necessarily, at times it has been, but it's often, you know, at times it's had to uh, circle the wagons and hide. You've got the the, the right. martyrs hiding. You know, you've got the early Christians hiding in the catacombs. Yeah, you could you could say the church only condemns and defines in order to sanctify. That's what she's trying to do. This so, is, this is in part why you find some twenty different uh, liturgies in the church, different rites within the church, different languages, different cultures different ways to enculturate or, or bring the gospel message to other cultures and to sanctify them. So the Second Vatican Council really did, uh, I think it is true, uh, reposition the Catholic faith to one of a hopeful, confident engagement. That Look at what John Paul II said over and over again. Do not be afraid. It was just a recurring theme. Look at his book, Witness to Hope. Catholics have nothing to be afraid of right. in this modern world, whether it's you know, transgender ideology, same-sex marriage, abortion, anti-Christian. Do not be afraid because we have the truth. Let's bring it. Let's not just try to hide from it. Let's bring it to them. And so I think that, that just what, what you might call uh, a a temperament or disposition is deeply built into mm -hmm. that council, mm -hmm. and I think I, I think it's a healthy one and a good one. That's great. That's great. Well, one last point I think is really important. We've been we've been laying before you really Pope Benedict's argument that uh, the council isn't the problem. The authentic, true implementation of the council according to its text—that's how we're going to know it—is the solution for the crisis in the church and the call of the Holy Spirit for our time. But then Benedict XVI also adds this other point. How do we really fully implement it besides knowing what it says and abiding by it? We have to become more holy. So it's, it's really the work that you and Steph are in, in, engaged in. So here's what he says. It must not be forgotten, Benedict uh, continues, that every council is first of all a reform of the summit which then must spread to the base of the faithful. This means that every council, in order really to yield its fruit, must be followed by a wave of holiness. Thus it was after Trent. And Trent achieved its aim of real reform precisely for this reason. Salvation for the church comes from within her, but this in no way means to say that it comes from the decrees of the hierarchy. Whether Vatican II and its results will be considered as a luminous period of church history will depend upon all the Catholics who are called to give it life. So I think that's just... Well, there, there, there's how we conclude. How do we implement that council? What, what is the most faithful implementation? What can we do? Uh, read the documents, but really become sane. Seek to become sane. Seek to become holy.
Nathan and Elizabeth, you guys are truly a gift to the church. And uh, I, I'm just very grateful for your presentation of uh, an area that many just don't know much about and we can all stand to understand more fully. Um, I do think is a question because we are nearing the end of our hour and uh, certainly we'll have you back. Um, we're so blessed by your wisdom and your thoughtfulness and on this and even your witness, of course, as parents of uh, nine beautiful kids and obviously radiating brightly from Hillsdale College, which we become uh, beloved members of through John Paul and hopefully Catherine next year. But there's this phrase that is worth maybe understanding for the layman, rad trad. And I wonder if you could define what that means in charitable terms, Nathan. (laughs) Well, it's obviously short for uh, radically traditionalist. Most isms reflect a kind of exaggerated uh, attachment to some true dimension of reality, but mm-hmm. that exaggeration. There is a positive interpretation and a negative interpretation. Mm-hmm. So you could just take it. You could just take it to mean a rad trad is someone who particularly loves the beauty of the extraordinary form of the Latin rite and mm-hmm. the expressions of the church that are are in that rite. So I would call that just a trad, not a. There rad you go. Trad. Okay. Well, my point is. That's great. The church is really diverse. I mean, mm-hmm. look at the charisms in the church. You got the Dominicans, you got the Franciscans, mm-hmm. you got uh, you got the Benedictines. I mean, so you have all these rights. So the church is truly liberal with a small L. And right. you can't forget that. When we are called, say I'm called to be a third order Dominican, if I start going around explaining to everyone why their charism doesn't cut it because I'm seeing the whole world as a third order Dominican. That's not Catholic. I mean, the word Catholic means universal for Mm -hmm. a reason. So we've got to be, we got to be liberal. So if you're just someone who loves the extraordinary form, good for you. That's Mm -hmm. beautiful. You love the Maronite rite. Good for you. That's Catholic. That's beautiful. You've got good reasons. Beauty and truth is so big. Mm. One rite doesn't express it. It's got to be all these different charisms and rights. The Holy Spirit is just so inventive. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you think that any that the the uh, extraordinary form is the perfect expression of the liturgy for all time, and the Novus Ordo is so bad it's borderline. Uh, invalid heresy mm-hmm. whatever that's not yeah. catholic you know that is not catholic so that's just what i would caution and yeah. the other thing is once you once you go down that road where you just want the most most pure tradition with a small t uh it, there's no ending it so in a way if you follow traditionalism all the way back you ought to be jewish yeah. right? <laughs> there's just no stopping right it. right, right. So, so why are why are we on the gregorian t- calendar you know so, so there's a way in which we have to have a proper catholic understanding of the importance of tradition guided by the magisterium right and a liberal yeah. attitude about it. as we're coming in for landing i do want to acknowledge that many who find themselves uh aligned or interested in the rad trad uh shall we say approach theology mindset there they have a healthy sensibility of a grandiose elevation of the subjective they have they have a, a concern for a culture that has elevated what one feels 
to the status of dogma or doctrine, which we know falls apart, right? Uh, worshiping emotions in the name of God, acting on whim. A number of these come from non-Catholic, you know, traditions where they, they matured to the point where they said, there's got to be an objective truth here. There's got to be something more solid than us getting together with people and pastors and kind of deciding how we want to interpret scripture or how we want to present Sunday Mass or Sunday Church, I should say. And that's the Matthew 7, I think, where it's so powerful, you know, solid rock or shifting sand. As soon as we get away from that authoritative teaching that is given to us in the magisterium, as soon as we get off of that rock, we make ourselves vicars. I, I would put it this way. There's going to be a vicar And that vicar is either going to be the one that Christ gave us in his church, or it's going to be someone else, and invariably it's going to be us. And uh, there's going to be the church of me. So I think the answer to that is this gift of the church, the magisterium, and um, let's face it, uh, working it out in from culture to culture. So very, very blessed to have you, Dr. Nathan and Elizabeth, with us tonight. You guys are truly a gift to us. And for all of you who are listening tonight, just so blessed to be in this arena and uh, seeking the heart of God during this Lenten season. We just pray for an outpouring of continued blessings in your marriages and in your families. Join us on that journey at ilovemyfamily.us. Until next time, God God bless bless you. you.